Thank you for downloading this Hay Festivals podcast. For more information about the Hay Festivals globally and to access our archive, please visit hayfestival.org. Thank you. Please welcome Bill Bryson, who will be introduced and interviewed by the US editor of the Times, Bromwell Maddox. Peter Florence for tickets to this. I gather I got the last one. I read uh, Bill Bryson's books, as most of you will have done. Notes from a Small Island, which has dominated the bestseller list here. Um, The Lost Continent on America, which is invaluable reading for a foreign correspondent, neither here nor there, on the the European continent, and the two books on language, the comedy of American English. What I hadn't realized until I moved to Washington last year, though, was that he's become a kind of patron saint of foreign correspondence in a way he might not entirely approve of. For a start, some people have taken it as encouragement not to be entirely deferential about a place you find yourself in. That's maybe no bad thing. But I found um, the other week in Wisconsin that people now take it as a license to pick the most exotic thing on the menu. In this case, uh, chicken fried steak with three cheeses on the grounds that, well, Bill Bryson would surely have had this. And in Mexico City the other day with with Clinton, I overheard one of my colleagues saying he really needed an extra day in town to have that Bill Bryson edge to his story. He was told sharply by his foreign desk that on the new Bryson index of wit per dollar of expenses, he was going to score rather lower than the original. You've come to hear the original. Bill is going to read. Um, I think at the special request of Peter Florence, organizer of the festival, a piece on Wales, and other pieces he's chosen from his recent work. Bill Bryson. Thank you, thank you very much, and thank you, Bronwyn, for those kind words. Um, As Bronwyn said, I I was asked to, um, especially asked to to read a passage about the Blino Festiniag Railway, so I'm very nervous. I don't usually, when I do uh, readings in Britain, I don't usually read the uh, appropriate parts of the book, the places I go. This, you need to know um, that uh, uh, I had really been looking forward to this part of the trip. Uh, I'd been in North Wales, and I was going to take a bus uh, across Snowdonia and then get on the Blino Fistiniog Railway and go on to Port Maddox and uh, everything went wrong. I had absolutely the worst weather possible. It was an absolute deluge. So uh, where I start this passage, it's um, just as I arrive in, in Blynau. The, the bus dropped me in the center of town near the terminus of the famous Blynau Festinia Railway, now a private line run by enthusiasts, in which I hoped to take through the cloudy mountains to Port Maddox. The station platform was open but all the doors to waiting rooms, toilets, and ticket halls were padlocked, and there was no one around. I had a look at the winter timetable hanging on the wall and discovered to my dismay that I had just missed, literally just missed, a train. Puzzled, I dragged my crumpled bus timetable from my pocket and discovered with further dismay that the bus was actually scheduled to arrive just in time to miss the one midday train. (laughs) 
Running a finger down the rail timetable, I learned that the next train would not be for another four hours. The next bus would follow that by minutes. <laughs> How could that be possible? And more to the point, what on earth was I supposed to do with myself in this godforsaken place, <coughs> this godforsaken rain sodden place for four hours? There was no possibility of staying on the platform. It was cold and the rain was falling at such a treacherous slant that there was no place to escape it, even in the furthest corners. Muttering uncharitable thoughts about Gwyneth Transport, the Blino Fistiniog Railway Company, the British climate, and my own mad folly, I set off through the little town. This being Wales, and this being Sunday, nothing was open. At the far end of the town, there was a little restaurant called Methanley's, and by a miracle, it was open. I hastened into its beckoning warmth, where I peeled off my sodden jacket and sweater and went with a head full of suddenly enlivened hair to a table by a radiator. I was the only customer. I ordered a coffee and a little something to eat and savored the warmth and dryness. Somewhere in the background, Nat King Cole sang a perky tune. I watched the rain beat down on the road outside and told myself that one day this would be 20 years ago. If I learned one thing in Blynau that day, it was that no matter how hard you try, you cannot make a cup of coffee and a cheese omelet last four hours. <laughs> I ate as slowly as I could and ordered a second cup of coffee, but after nearly an hour of delicate eating and sipping, it became obvious that I was either going to have to leave or pay rent. So I, re I reluctantly gathered up my things. At the till, I explained my plight to the kindly couple who ran the place, and they both made those sympathetic oh dear noises that kindly people make when confronted with someone else's crises. He might go to the slate mine, suggested his, the woman to the man. Yes, he might go to the slate mine, agreed the man and turned to me. You might go to the slate mine. <laughs> oh, and what's that exactly, I said, trying not to sound too doubtful. The old mine, they do guided tours, he said. It's very interesting, added his wife. Yes, it's very interesting, said the man. Mind, it's a fair hike, he added. And it may not be open on a Sunday, added his wife. <laughs> Out of season, she explained. Of course, you could always take a cab up there if you don't fancy the walk in this weather, said the man. I looked at him. A cab? Did he say a cab? This seemed too miraculous to be taken in. You have a cab service in Blynau. Oh, yes, said the man, as if this were one of Blynau's more celebrated features. <laughs> Would you like me to order one to take you to the mine? Well, I sought for words. I didn't want to sound ungrateful when these people had been so kind, but on the other hand, I found the prospect of an afternoon touring a slate mine in damp clothes about as appealing as a visit to the proctologist. Do you think the cab would take me to Port Maddox? I said. I wasn't sure how far it was, and I dared not hope. Of course, said the man. So he called a cab for me, and the next thing I knew, I was departing to a volley of good wishes from the proprietors and stepping into a cab feeling like a shipwreck victim being winched to unexpected safety. I cannot tell you what, with what joy I beheld the sight of Blynau disappearing into the distance behind me. So I rode the cab onto Port Maddox and um, had a look around the town. And eventually, towards the end of that afternoon, um, I came across the headquarters for the famous Blynau Festiniog Railway. Interested to see the nerve center of this organization, which had caused me so much distress and discomfort earlier, I went in. Though it was well after five, the station bookstop, bookshop was still open and liberally sprinkled with silent browsers. According to, I'm sorry, uh, 
lost my place, sorry. Though the last train of the day had finished its run some time ago, there was still a man in the ticket booth. So I went over and interrogated him quietly about the lack of coordination between the train and bus services in Blinow. I don't know why, because I was charm itself. But he got, a dis he got distinctly huffy, as if I were being critical of his wife, and said in a petulant tone, well, if Gwyneth Transport want people to catch the midday train from Blinow, then they should have the buses set off earlier. But equally, I persisted, you could have the train leave a few minutes later. <laughs> he looked at me as if I were being outrageously presumptuous and said, but why should we? <laughs> and there you have, you see, everything that is wrong with these train enthusiast types. They are irrational, argumentative, dangerously fussy, and often, as here, have an irritating little Michael Fish mustache that makes you want to stick out two forked fingers and pop them in the eyes. <laughs> I guess I got away with that one, didn't I? <laughs> um, trains were a constant bewilderment to me uh, as I traveled around Britain for this book. <coughs> Partly because, I don't know if you've ever noticed, tra catching trains in Britain is a complete, is, is something of an art. Um, and it takes years if you're a foreigner to get the hang of it. This is in Barnstable in Devon. No, I'm sorry, this is in Exeter in Devon. The platform televisions weren't working and I couldn't understand the announcements. So every time a train came in, I had to get up and make inquiries. For reasons that elude rational explanation, British Rail always puts the destinations on the front of the train, which would be awfully handy if passengers were waiting on the tracks. but not perhaps ideal for those boarding it from the side. <laughs> Most of the other passengers evidently couldn't hear the announcements either because when the Barnstable train eventually came in, half a dozen of us formed a patient queue beside a BR employee and asked him if this was the Barnstable train. <laughs> now for the benefit of foreign readers, I should explain that there is a certain ritual involved in this. <laughs> Even though you have heard the conductor tell the person ahead of you, that this is the Barnstable train, <laughs> you still have to say, excuse me, is this the Barnstable train? <laughs> when he acknowledges that the large linear object three feet to your right is indeed the Barnstable train, you have to point to it and say this one. Then when you board the train, you must additionally ask the carriage. <laughs> you must additionally ask the carriage generally, excuse me, is this the Barnstable train? <laughs> to which most people will say that they think it is. except for one man with a lot of parcels <laughs> who will get a panicked look and, <coughs> and hurriedly gather up his things and get off. <laughs> now you should always take his seat since you will generally find that he has left behind a folded newspaper 
and an uneaten bar of chocolate, and possibly a nice pair of sheepskin gloves. Thus it was that I found myself sliding out of Exeter St. David's Station while a man laden with parcels trotted along beside my window, mouthing sentiments I couldn't decipher through the thick glass, <laughs> and taking stock of my new possessions. <laughs> a daily mirror and a Kit Kat. Um, I don't usually read this part, but it's right here in the neighborhood, and you seem an awfully nice bunch. <laughs> so <clears throat> this is just, this is very short. Um, but this is, this is why um, I wouldn't want to be a pigeon. So I sat on a bench and passed the time watching the station pigeons. They really are the most amazingly panicky and dopey creatures. I couldn't imagine an emptier, less satisfying life. Here are instructions for being a pigeon. One, walk around aimlessly for a while, pecking at cigarette butts and other inappropriate items. Two, take fright at someone walking along the platform and fly off to a girder. Three, have a shit. <laughs> Four, repeat. Uh, okay, well, maybe I'll just quickly switch to neither here nor there. There's a passage I always like to read, if I can find the page. This is, um, well, this is nothing to do with anything, really. I just like this passage. I don't know why it is, but something about me incites dogs to a frenzy. I would be a rich man if I had a nickel for every time a dog tried to get at the marrow in my ankle bone, while the owner just stood there and said, well, I don't understand it. He's never done anything like this before. <laughs> you must have said something to him. That always knocks me out. What would I say to the dog? Hello, boy, like to open a vein in my leg. <laughs> the only time a dog will not attack me with a view to putting me in a wheelchair is when I'm a guest at someone's house, sitting on a deep sofa with a glass filled to the brim. In this case, the dog, and it's always a dog with a large dog with a saliva problem, <laughs> will decide he doesn't want to kill me but to have sex with me. <laughs> Come on, Bill, get your pants off, I'm hot. <laughs> he seems to be saying. The owner always says, is he bothering you? I can put him out if he's bothering you. <laughs> hey, I want to reply, don't put him out, put him down. <laughs> it wouldn't bother me in the least if all the dogs in the world were placed in a large sack and taken to some distant island, Greenland springs attractively to mind, where they could romp around and sniff each other's anuses to their heart's content and never ever bother or terrorize me again. The only kind of dog I would excuse from this roundup is poodles. Poodles I would shoot. <laughs> to my mind, the only possible pet is a cow. Cows love you. They are harmless, they look nice, they don't need a box to defecate in, 
They keep the grass down, and they're so trusting and stupid that you cannot help but lose your heart to them. Where I live in Yorkshire, there's a herd of cows down the lane. You can stand by the field wall at any hour of the day or night, and after a minute, all the cows will waddle over and stand with you, much too stupid to know what to do next, <laughs> but happy just to be with you. They will stand there all day, as far as I can tell, possibly till the end of time. They will listen to your problems forever and never ask a thing in return. They will be your friends until the end of time. And when you get tired of them, you can kill them and eat them. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Um, I'll just jump back. I'm sorry, I'm not very well organized here today. I'll just jump back to notes from a small island uh, from my last passage, um, because I would hate for you to leave here tonight and not think that I was not really crazy about this country. This is, um, this is in Mallondale, in the Yorkshire Dales. <coughs> we drove home over the tops, a winding six-mile drive of unutterable loveliness, up onto the Wuthering Heights-like expanses around Kirby Fell, with boundless views of northern glory, and then began the descent into the serene, cupped majesty of Mallondale, the little lost world that had been my home for seven years. Halfway down, I had my wife stop the car by a field gate. My favorite view in the world is there, and I got out to have a look. You can see almost the whole of Mallondale from there, sheltered and snug beneath steep, imposing hills, with its arrow straight, dry stone walls climbing up impossibly ambitious slopes. Its clustered hamlets, its wonderful little two-room schoolhouse, the old church with its sycamores and tumbling tombstones, the roof of my local pub, and in the very center of it all, obscured by trees, our old stone house, which itself is far older than my native country. It looked so peaceful and wonderful that I could almost have cried, and yet <coughs> it was only a tiny part of this small enchanted island. Suddenly, in the space of a moment, I realized what it was that I loved about Britain, which is to say, all of it, every bit of it, good and bad. Marmite, village fates, country lanes, people saying mustn't grumble, <laughs> and I'm terribly sorry, but People apologizing to me when I conk them with a careless elbow. Milk in bottles, beans on toast, haymaking in June, stinging nettles, seaside piers, ordnance survey maps, crumpets, hot water bottles as a necessity. <laughs> Drizzly Sundays, every bit of it. What a wondrous place this was. Crazy as all get out, of course, but adorable to the tiniest degree. What other country, after all, could possibly have come up with place names like Tooting Beck and Farley Wallop? or a game like cricket that goes on for days and never seems to start. <laughs> Who else would think it not the least odd to make their judges wear little mops on their heads? <laughs> Compel the Lord Chancellor to sit on something called the wool sack, or take pride in a military hero whose dying wish was to be kissed by a fellow named Hardy. <laughs> what other nation in the world could possibly have given us William Shakespeare, pork pies, Christopher Wren, Windsor Great Park, the Open University, Gardner's Question Time, and the Chocolate Digestive Biscuit. <laughs> None, of course. All of this came to me in the space of a lingering moment. I've said it before, and I'll say it again. I like it here. I like it more than I can tell you. And then I turned from the gate and got in the car and knew without doubt that I would be back. Thank you all very, very much. <laughs> Thank you.
that's much that's much better. Bill, thanks very much. You ended on that note. You love it here. Why did you go back to America? Uh, you know, it's a question I ask myself sometimes. Um, we it's a couple of years ago. You went we've been back in the yeah. States for two years. It's very nice. I mean, it's, mm -hmm. really, it's really very nice. It's an easy, very easy country to live in. The reason we did it was because, in the first instance, it was becoming increasingly impractical for us to live in the Dales, where we were living. Uh, because I'm away so much in the work I do, my wife was essentially running a ferry service for our children. And we realized that we had to, to move somewhere that was slightly less remote, more urban. And then from there, somehow it got just, the idea got developed that, well, why stop, you know, why go to Wiltshire or Devon or, or wherever? Um, why go to Bath or Cheltenham? We could go to the States. And before I knew it, that's what we were doing. I th the, the rationale behind it was that um, we would give the children the experience of living in another country. And I think that was a very sensible thing to do. I'd always felt very privileged to have the opportunity to live in two different countries, to experience two cultures. And we wanted to give some of that to the children. Did you want to write about America again? Though? I mean, a lot of your, your, your books um, have been going back to somewhere, taking another look at you the point when it has become 20 years on. Um, no, I didn't really. I mean, I, I, I felt that, that I had done um, America with the Ross Continent. Mm -hmm. I didn't feel mm -hmm. any compelling urge to go back from the point of view of writing. But um, I, d I don't know. I, th I, I thought that it would do me good to go back. I, I, I wasn't really overwhelmingly drawn back to America, but at the same time, it was the place I came from. And uh, it, it just seemed like it would be something that would be interesting to do for three or four mm -hmm. or five years. Mm -hmm. That was our original thinking. Um, it's still my thinking. but. Uh, uh, Unfortunately for me, my wife and children absolutely adore it over there. <laughs> and I, I don't know how easy it's going to be for me to get them back here. How have you found it since you go back? Is it, uh, is it have you changed? Oh, yeah. And I mean, the thing for me in America is that uh, I was only ever just a kid there. I, I just grew up there. And when I went back, it was all the things that you do as a grown-up I'd only ever done in Britain. So things like taking out a mortgage and being in charge of a, a furnace and all of that kind of stuff it was just a, it was all new experience to me it was I was felt completely helpless um, I mean I can remember going into the our local hardware store our ironmongers and and it was humiliating that I didn't know what to ask the words for certain things like I, I'd have to say um, I need some of that gooey stuff you stick in holes in the wall my wife's people call it polyfilla <laughs> and, and and the guy would say well, it's spackle and I, but I had no it idea. It is spackle. It's yeah, spackle in America, <laughs> which you may find, probably won't, but you may find handy one day to know that. Um, and and raw plugs. They don't call them raw plugs. They call them anchors. So I was just constantly, particularly in the first six months or so, I was constantly running up against this feeling of not being from there, yeah, even though I was. It was, mm. it was kind of a strange experience. And now the translation. Do they, do they find you British in a way, do you, or do you feel more... Well, I don't know. I mean, I, I'm, I'm very comfortable there. I don't mean to be... I, it's, it's a very easy country to live in. I think the thing that I really miss is the sense of humor here, I, um, because it's just not the same there. I mean, Americans can be very, very funny. I, I always feel compelled to add that, because um, it's, not <laughs> true, it's not true to think that Americans have no sense of humor. I mean, because if you look at, at, at some of the funniest people that have ever lived, they've come from the United States. You know, um, the Marx Brothers and W.C. Fields and, and so on, S.J. Perlman. Um, lots and lots of really very funny people. But in, in terms of everyday discourse, in terms of just uh, daily living, 
there isn't a great deal of, of humor there, and I miss that a lot. I had this brought home to me not too long ago when uh, I stepped out the back door of our house and a neighbor was, um, he'd had a tree fall down in his back garden and he was cutting it up into smaller pieces and putting it on the roof of his car in order to cart it away. And it was all dangling down over the side of the car. And I said, oh, I see your camouflage in your car. <laughs> and he said, no, I had a tree fall down. And I <laughs> And it's that kind of thing I miss, you know, that you can't, and now it's be with, with this poor man, it's become kind of a compulsion with me to <laughs> say these things. Like, um, the, the other day we were talking about some, some nightmarish travel experience I'd had where I'd missed some plane connections, and he said, who did you fly with? And I said, I don't know, they were all strangers. <laughs> and... He didn't get that either. <laughs> what, what about your accent? Is it? Is it um, oh yeah, I mean, it's, it's especially when I go back to Iowa. When I go back to Iowa, where mm. I came from, um, they think that I'm doing a, a Lord Olivier invitation. <laughs> there's there in in New England where I live now. There's more. Uh, there's a greater diversity of accents, and uh, it doesn't seem to alarm or disturb them quite so much. Mm. Mm. You've had uh, in Britain. You've you've dominated the bestseller list, you've really dominated this, this kind of travel writing and satire really, uh, um, spread over, over those two, and you get um, ecstatic receptions from, from audiences. In America, it seems more ambivalent. In, in the Midwest, maybe people, people laugh. No, it's not, it's not ambivalent. It hasn't even reached the point of being ambivalent yet. Yeah. <laughs> it's, um, I mean, in America, I just, there's, I'm just not known. Um, there's <laughs> I mean, it's as simple as that. Uh, I, I mean, I don't mean to sound pathetic, because a lot of <laughs> A, a lot of people are just not known in America. Mm -hmm. and, uh, it, 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 I, I mean, no, it's not stop, because I'm trying to make a serious point. Uh. There's the, the problem, I think, particularly with, with nonfiction writing in America is that uh, it's reached the point there now where, where you almost have to be famous before you write the book. In fact, you don't even have to write the book. You get someone to do it for you. But it... If you look at the bestseller lists in, in the States, uh, nonfiction bestseller lists, it's always books by, you know, O.J. Simpson people or Colin Powell or people like that. Um, people who have some sort of fame or celebrity beforehand uh, or, or even notoriety. And um, so it's, it's kind of frustrating for me, but I mean, every time I go to the, our local bookshop, I see lots and lots of other books that look eminently worthy um, that clearly are not going to sell in, in very large numbers either. Mm. I think you, you know, you, you're really very lucky here that you've got a, a quite a healthy and diversified publishing um, market here. And, uh, it's it is a provocative thing. thing to say, hey, I, as I'm sure you know. But <laughs> well, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> but, but do you think, oh, as, as, as well as that, that Americans um, don't like uh, you making fun of them? In the, in the oh, same there way? is that. I don't, as, you know, it, it goes back to uh, Americans are not so good at laughing at themselves, I think, mm -hmm. as other people. That's a, a big generalization, and I think it's certainly true that people in the Midwest of the United States are much better. Um, I grew up in the Midwest, and, and when I made all the jokes I made about Midwesterners in the, lo in the Lost Continent, I did it assuming that everybody in the States would realize that it was just jokes and that it wasn't meant to be taken seriously, and that there was an element of, of fondness and even pride in coming from that part of the world myself. 
And people in the Midwest did find it that way, by and large. Um, the reviews that I got for the book were almost all favorable in, in the middle part of the country mm -hmm. and very resentful um, on the east and west coasts. Unfortunately, those are the important reviews <laughs> in, in America. Do you find America as funny? As, I mean, maybe the mid Midwest aside, which is almost, I mean, like, like Britain in its stability in some ways. Tell us about the, 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 um, the new book you're writing, which you said was a, a proper travel book. Oh, well, yeah, the new book I'm working on, which should be out in the autumn, um, if all goes well, uh, is that uh, it's, it's going to be called A Walk in the Woods, and it's about hiking the Appalachian Trail, and uh, which is a 2,200-mile-long footpath that goes through 14 states through the Appalachian Mountains along the eastern seaboard of the United States. And uh, I spent much, much of last year hiking that trail, and the book is, um, is what I'm working on at the moment. I haven't really sold that very effectively, have I? Mm -hmm. It'll be okay, I promise. <laughs> Did you decide uh, uh, not to make it as satirical? Did you, what do you mean by a proper? Well, I mean, it was book to me, it was a proper, I, I've never thought of myself remotely as a travel writer. I mean, travel mm -hmm. writers are people who go off to Mongolia and sleep on hard floors and eat unidentifiable meats and things. And um, I, I've never done that, but this is as close as I probably will ever come because hiking the Appalachian Trail, it's a total wilderness experience. You have to carry everything in a big backpack. You have to, you live out in the woods. It's, um, you know, for days on, days on end, you're cut off from civilization. So it had a sense, very much more of a sense of adventure me. Um, I had never done any of that stuff. I'd never pitched a tent. I'd never cooked in the open air uh, or, or any of that kind of stuff. I'd never had to, to wonder if bears were going to come into my camp at night. Um, so in that sense, it, was, it does feel much more like a real travel book. But it's still, I mean, I still think it'll be funny. The, the best part for me was that um, it just ha happened that the, the person I talked into coming along with me was the real Stephen Katz the original guy from Neither Here Nor There, came back. I hadn't seen him really at all for 25 years, and um, so it was very convenient for me because it gives me a kind of link, it, well, it gives mm -hmm. me a built-in comic character, for one thing, and uh, it, it gives me a link with one of the er earlier books. Mm. Do you find it harder to write about uh, continental Europe, not having so many links? Yeah, I think it's much easier. It's always... Yeah. Uh, helps a lot if you've spent, like when I wrote about Britain, you know, I'd lived here for 20 years. Um, if you have that kind of familiarity with the place. Mm. Or when I wrote about the United States and, and the Lost Continent, I, I grew up there. I spent the first 20 mm. years of my mm. life there. Mm. So th it, it gives you so much to draw on in terms of anecdote and experience and understanding. So when you do a book, when I do a book like uh, Neither Here Nor There, you have to try to make a virtue of your ignorance, in fact. I mean, you, I, it is really just a lot of sketches. Um, it, it's it's postcard-type writing. It's um, very superficial observations. But I think that, I think that th those can be worthwhile as well. I really do believe that um, your initial impressions of a place are, have quite a lot of validity. Um, because <coughs> once you get to know a place, you realize that it's not as simple as you thought it was. And you actually lose a kind of portion of perspective on it. Mm. That sound plausible? It, it does sound plausible, but I'm wondering, as you said, did you ever feel you got you got Britain wrong at any point? Oh well, I mean, nobody can never get Britain. You can never get you can never get any country right, and I think especially you could never get Britain right because I mean, it is so, it is such a complex society. Um, 
I didn't deal with a lot of huge issues. I mean, the book doesn't touch on a lot of things that are of concern. Um, I, I mean, the book doesn't really come into anything like race and unemployment, and um, it makes only glancing observations about the National Health Service, and all of these things that are real issues I didn't deal with, but that's not the kind of book I was trying mm -hmm. to write. I mean, that wasn't my intention. My idea was really to look at, as much as I could, at the character of the British people. Do, do you think Britain's become less funny? Has it become richer? We keep getting told by American uh, news magazines all the time that London is the liveliest city uh, anywhere they can think of this month. And um, I was wondering whether you, if you, whether you thought that made Britain um, less, less amusing. No, no, not at all. Maybe, I, no, I don't. I think, um, I mean, I think Britain is a really lucky country in that you have all the glory of having been top nation for so long. And you have all this kind of built-in infrastructure of, of um, grandeur and everything. And yet you don't have the weight of that any longer. I mean, it's, it's, it's clear that Britain is never going to be um, you know, the, one of the top three nations in the world again, that it's going to be part of, uh, it's going to be, you know, it's going to be like France or Italy or Germany. It's just going to be a good-sized mm -hmm. European nation. And I think, um, so you have the kind of the greatness, but you also don't have the responsibility anymore or, mm -hmm. the, or the pompousness or the kind of arrogance that I suspect may have existed here in, say, the late 19th century, where, you know, that kind of uh, super patriotism. I mean, one of the attractive things about Britain compared with America, I think, is that it's not um, overtly or uh, irritatingly patriotic. Mm. On that note, I, I see even some, some, some people may want to challenge you on that. Uh, there's so many people here, and I know a lot of people dying to ask you questions at, at, at this point. Let's, let's, let's go to the audience with two microphones. You have to make some fairly dramatic signal uh, that you want to ask a question because there are a lot of heads. Let's start, let's start with the guy over, over there behind the loudspeaker. I wonder after 20 years of thinking about us and writing about us, if you could name about three things that you still find incomprehensibly batty about us that you really couldn't get to grips with? Three things incomprehensibly batty. Oh, about three things. Um, <laughs> jo jokes to do with the bottom. <laughs> I, I mean, I've seen, I've heard some that made me laugh, but I don't ever think of it as automatic. <laughs> um, cricket, I'm sorry, I really tried. It, it, and I can see that it's a great sport and all that, but it's just, I just never could watch it. And the third, golly, um, well, there's, I mean, one of the things that I find really endearing is, is the kind of just sense of ridiculousness that permeates the nation at every level. Um, and the fact that very often people don't even notice it. it it's just, I mean, just things like the place names, you know, like the idea that you could could seriously live in a place called Great Snoring or Spittle in the Street. Um, I, I find that wonderful. And, and the, the fact is that people who live in places like blubber houses, if you laugh at them, they, they don't understand why you're laughing. Thanks. There's one over here. Um, this side, thanks. It's on. Um, I just wondered if you ever get any hate mail from that rare Britain who hasn't got a sense of humour. Uh, very little. I mean, I got off very lightly with um, with notes from Small Island. I, 
What I got instead, which was even worse than hate mail, was I got a lot of um, dejected letters. The, like I was, I I was you're quite completely right. Oh, yeah, it was, that was awful. Um, there was, I got a lot of letters from Bradford, for instance. Because <laughs> <laughs> I said in the book that the, uh, I can't remember exactly how I phrased it, but essentially that, that, um, that Bradford's role in life is to make everywhere else in the world look better. <laughs> and it does this very well. And, and I got all these letters from Bradford, and they all said, yes, you're so right. <laughs> and I would have, it would have been a lot easier if they had just told me I was a complete dickhead. You know? mm. And letters from town planners? You, you don't know any deviation from the Oxford... Uh, N no, I, did, I, I didn't get... Um, I did have a couple of letters from town planners who said uh, th how right I was. Uh, they did, both of them agreed with me. And then I thought, well, what, do, how, what are you doing? Because <laughs> I don't see this put into mm. practice. Up in the corner, there, half, halfway down, a man in the grey shirt. Oh, sorry, someone's got it up there. And, there, and then this shadow there. Uh, Mr. Bryson, could you and would you tell us uh, where your favourite place in Britain is and why? Well, um, it's obviously a very big question, but I, have, I do have a soft spot for the Dales because I lived there for eight years and, and was very happy there. I like Mallondale, um, where, where I lived very much, and, and was full of regret about leaving it. So if I had to choose a place, it would, it would be Mallondale. I'm a travel writer, and I live in Colorado. And I'm wondering at what point you found the story about the train funny. It's sure not funny when it happened. <laughs> oh, did I find it funny when it was happening? No. I don't, I'm <laughs> I don't find any of these, these things funny when they're happening. Um, it's, I mean, you, you, when you write the kind of books I write, you put, you get put yourself in a very strange position that you are actually kind of always hoping that things will go wrong because it gives you material. I, I know that if I ever got run over by a bus, I'd be thinking, well, this, this is, I'll get a chapter out of this. Mm. <laughs> so you're not, not the kind who berates the British Rail Guard. You stand there beaming as the train... Yeah, well, kind of. Um, but also, I mean... I'll, I'll, uh, no, it just, you know, it, I'm very lucky that, that I can pretty well be sure wherever I go, things will go wrong. <laughs> That's a talent. Um, uh, Mr. Bryson. If you, over here. Sorry, I could. <laughs> if you were giving advice to a fellow American who was contemplating coming over here and staying in a British boarding house, what would you advise him to include in his survival kit? <laughs> Golly. Um, well, I, I hate to leap to the defense of the, of the good British guest house, but. Um, they're so much better than they used to be. They, I mean, I, I wrote at some length about guest houses in Britain and notes from a small island, and I mean, they really have come along. I don't think there's anything that's well, possibly British rail sandwiches, but I can't think of anything else that's improved that much in the last 25 years. That, um, you know, because you now almost everywhere you, where you go into a guest house, you get a little color television and uh, a little uh, tea-making facilities and the 
the inevitable fruit, Shrewsbury's biscuits, and um, who eats those? And, <laughs> and, and the little sachets of things to put in the bath and everything. I mean, that, you didn't get anything like that 25 years ago. You were lucky to be let in at all. <laughs> so I think, I think actually, you know, um, staying in an English guest house is now a, a, a nicer experience than staying in, say, the average American motel. And cheaper, too. Mr. Bryson, when you um, plan a journey, how, would, how much research do you do? How do you actually decide where to go? I mean, is it, is it totally unknown to you? Or do you, do you talk to people? Or how, do, how do you go about oh, it? it? Well, it depends on what I'm doing, of course. But if, if it's a book, um, like, I mean, what I try to do is I have some kind of an itinerary. I know that I'm going to have to, that this journey, whatever it is, is going to have to generate enough material to fill a book. So I like to have some idea that the places I'm going will are likely to pr prove productive in some way. But I also very much enjoyed just the, the being able to be spontaneous and, and whimsical and going places um, just at the drop of a hat, because I think that's an important element as well. I found when I did notes from a small island that an awful lot of the time my travel was constrained by the availability, or more often not, of public transport. That uh, very often, I mean, I had this, this idea, for instance, of going to Barnstable from that passage I read and traveling by, by bus along the, the north coast of Devon to uh, you know, Taunton or Bridgewater or somewhere, and discovered when I got there that it's simply not possible. You know. uh, it, th those bus services, those country buses, just don't run anymore. So. A lot of times with Notes from a Small Island, I had to turn around and go back and ended up going to bigger places than I wanted to because the, the little out-of-the-way places were so hard to get to. Up in the middle of the back. Yeah. Uh, Mr. Bryson, we pride ourselves, I think, in this country of having a very wide range of accents. Which of our accents have you found almost totally incomprehensible? What did he say? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there's, there's no question it's the Glaswegian accent um, that I really don't I, I really don't understand anything that anybody's ever said to me in Glasgow but the second uh, close run to that would be the Yorkshire Dales accent I had people in, that I drank in the pub with for eight years and I never understood a word they said to me <laughs> honestly I know they were always they talked a lot about tupping yeah. sheep I don't know what that was, and I, <laughs> I could never bring myself to inquire too closely. <laughs> but beyond that, I, really, there were several people, farmers who'd lived there for generations, and I never did learn what they were saying. Over here at the front. Mr. Bryson, uh, you said that when, you're, when you went back to the United States, your, your wife liked going back. I would like to know what three things particularly she she was pleased to find when she got back to the United States. I'm s I'm asking this as someone who's lived here and loves living in England, but I'm a wife and I can see things that. Well, my wife is English though. She she grew up in Surrey, so this was. I mean, what what she liked about America, um, first of all, was I mean, it was kind of a big adventure for her that she had never she hadn't lived there. Well, I'm sorry, we had lived there for two years, very early in our marriage while I finished college. 
but um, she hadn't really lived there as a, as a mother and a grown person. And, um, well, you know, I mean, it's a, <laughs> in the fullness of life, I don't know how you put it. Uh, and, and so, I mean, there was a, she was as, as much of a novice living in America as a responsible adult as I was. And, but to her, it was a big adventure. To me, it was kind of alarming that I, I wasn't better equipped. But to her, it's all very exciting. And that's a big part of it to her, and, and to my children as well, the, just the newness of it. The second thing she really adores, and I'm sure she would rank at least as high as number two, is home-delivered pizza. <laughs> uh, when we lived in the Yorkshire Dales, if she didn't want to cook, we didn't eat. <laughs> and now she has this m marvelous option of all these alternatives, and including having pizza brought to your house, which she thinks is absolute hallmark of civilization. <laughs> the third thing I think she really likes is um, the, f the friendliness of the people, uh, which, you know, with Americans can't be commended highly enough. They really are friendly. I mean, the people are really, particularly in our town, I think, and in our neighborhood, people were really, really nice to us. They were incredibly welcoming to us. Um, you know, they, you, you almost felt as if the one thing they'd been waiting for all their lives was for us to move to town. <laughs> Uh, and they're very good in that way. They're very, they're very warm, and um, that, that's nice, and that still counts for a lot, especially to her. The one on the front over here. I, I just have to say, it's not really a proper question, but I read your column recently about being a pedestrian in America with, with great interest, because I've lived over here seven years and recently went back to America. I don't get back there very often, and was the only pedestrian in the entire city of Orlando, Florida, and crossed a seven-lane highway to do a five-minute walk, and got a bit freaked out and thought I was an alien. And I mean, it was just sort of was very heartwarming to me. And it was interesting to see your perspective in a quite a crowded city with not quite seven lane highways that we were crossing, but you know, little jaunts five minutes apart. Oh and yeah, it's, it's, it's incredible. I mean, people do not walk anywhere in the States now. I mean, they really just do not. We had, I, I wrote this, this newspaper column a couple of weeks ago, um, and it's a true story that w when we first moved to Hanover, New Hampshire, where we live now, we, we invited our next door neighbors for dinner and they drove. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I thought, at first I thought it was totally ridiculous, you know. I said to them, do you have a helicopter for going to the supermarket? <laughs> and they, um, then I realized that it's not ridiculous. I mean, people drive everywhere now. Um, the average American walks 1.4 miles a week. That's total walking of all kinds. I mean, that's... You know, I, as I said in this column I wrote, um, I, I, I put in more mileage than that looking for the channel changer. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> up, right up at the uh, back there. Bill, I would like to find out how many miles of those 2,000 miles Appalachian Trail you've actually walked. Um, well, I you can buy my book and find out. <laughs> uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to... Uh, I, I, I think I, I did about half of it. Uh, I haven't actually done a real formal tally, but um, I mean what I found out very early on was that uh, w w I was walking with this fellow, Stephen Katz, um, and, and we walked and walked and walked and walked. Uh, we did um, 200 miles, which is half a million steps. It's a long way to go. I mean, you're talking almost Pennine Way length. And we came to a town, and we, w we went into a, a hiking outfitters, and there was a big map of the Appalachian Trail on the wall, and the map was, was four feet high, 
And I looked at see how much we'd done, and we'd done this much of it. <laughs> and I realized then we were never going to do it. We weren't going to do the whole thing. So what I did after that was tried to walk as much of it as I could in a year. I, 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 once I realized how big it was, I didn't have the heart to do the whole of it, and I didn't have the time to do the whole of it. So I, uh, and, and certainly from the point of view of, of getting material for a book, it was, wasn't necessary. So uh, what I did was um, I walked... I think about half of it all together. And what I did was I did all the important parts. I did all, like for instance, all the all the peaks in New England, um, but I didn't walk some of the connecting tissue. You know, there's a lot of times where you're just doing another 18 miles through the woods to get to another mountain. So um, I tended to cut out, in the end, cut out a lot of the the low-level walking and, and stuck to the important parts or parts that were historic or connected in some way. And you did this continuously, and you took a, a year. And I, I, did it, I, did it, I did the first part six weeks, six mm -hmm. and a half weeks, um, non-stop. Mm -hmm. It was during that phase that I realized it was mm -hmm. I was never going to do it. I mean, the six weeks was kind of an experiment to see how much I could do. Mm -hmm. But you went home in the middle to keep the... No, no, no. The six weeks are mm -hmm. completely out in the wilds right, with, right. with um, Stephen Katz. And then, then at the end of that six weeks, I had to go off and do some other things, and then I returned to the trail sometimes for two weeks at a time, sometimes just for a day, sometimes for four or five days, um, and, and walked it in sections after that. There, there's, there's two kinds of ways of hiking the Appalachian Trail end to end. There's this called through hiking, which is to do it all at once in one go. And then there's a, an equally, um, a, 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 sorry, my brain's not working well. But there's a, the second way of doing it is, is uh, what's called section hiking, which is to do it in sections. And I look at myself as now long-term section hiker. Uh, and the, the nice thing is the Appalachian Trail uh, goes right through Hanover, the town I live in. It goes right down Main Street. So every time I go up to town, I'm actually section hiking there. <laughs> Appalachian Trail. There's one in the middle somewhere over here. Sorry, it's getting darker. Sorry, let's just take this one over here. Uh, I'm just curious, even allowing for the use of artistic license, how has your mother reacted to being portrayed as someone who only ever offers to make sandwiches and say, I really don't know, do you? Um, I, 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 well, I showed my mom the, 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 the manuscript of The Lost Continent because um, my father had not died long before, and, and I really didn't want to upset her. She thought it was wonderful, and she thought it was a kind of a tribute to him. And um, I mean, my mom has a really good sense of humor, so she read the manuscript and she said to me, can I get you a sandwich, honey? <laughs> Hello, it's another one up here. Is it me or is it you? Um, on the back cover of Notes from a Small Island, you cited as one of the reasons for returning that uh, several million Americans believed that they'd been abducted by aliens at one point or another. Um, 3.7 million. 3.7 million, yes, thank you. And I just, it sounds like you have a plan to do something about that, and I was just wondering what it is. Yeah, well, I did at first, but I realized the magnitude of the problem was, <laughs> was beyond me. Um, yeah, is it, I mean, that's the, one of the amazing things about America is that it is so big, uh, the scale of everything, from, from just the physical landscape to, to the, the degree of craziness is, is, is just so enormous. I mean, you can have people who think they've been captured by aliens, it's not just a couple of dozen, it's 3.7 million. Um, it's the same number of people who are probably living in compounds somewhere with, with uh, rifles and bazookas and things. It's really quite alarming. But you have to put it, I suppose, into a larger context that they're only I mean, a small part of 265 million people. 
I hope, because otherwise it's really scary. It's not, it's not that small a part. We've got time for one or two more. Um, sorry, it's getting, it's getting dark. There was one, um, one over here. Yes, uh, Mr. Bryson, in the accidental tourist, Macon had a large book when he was on his travels so he could hide from strangers. Did you have a similar device on your travels? And if so, what was it? No, I don't have to hide from strangers. I'm, I, I'm one of those people that are invisible as soon as they leave home. Um, I, as I say, I think, I think only uh, dogs and Jehovah's Witnesses can spot me. <laughs> and uh, otherwise, people don't notice me. I, find it, I, I slip into the background very easily. So I don't actually have to hide from people. But it is, I, I, when I read The Accidental Tourist, I, I certainly identified with the main character because there is an element, a part of me that uh, I think I like to travel better than, than that fellow did, but um, I, I like, when I travel, I, I do, my instinct is to, is to be part of the background, not part of the foreground. Yeah. Let's make, I think we have to make Hi. this the last one. Okay. Yeah. The first thing I should say is I'm from Bradford, so I'm going to get you later. <laughs> 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 but the second thing is, one of the things I find most idiosyncratic about British people is caravanning and the whole concept of caravans. <laughs> and I'm sure you're familiar with that being from the Dales, and I wonder if you've ever thought of commenting on it. Yes, I, I'm very, I don't know that I want this to be my final comment tonight, but, <laughs> I, but I mean, this isn't what I want you to take away from this experience, but yes, I would be very happy if all the caravans disappeared overnight. Um, I, I have, Kevin's is something I, ca I can't understand it, where, where the appeal of it comes. In America, it's even worse, of course, because they have these great big motorhomes, these recreational vehicles. And people actually take cars tethered to the rear of them, like, <laughs> like dinghies. And it's, it's so bizarre, because they take these massive buildings on, on wheels uh, up in, out into the mountains and stuff, and then they do everything they can while they're up in the mountains not to actually experience fresh air or the outer doors. It's very, very strange. Um, maybe I'm just jealous, I don't know, but, but the idea of, the whole idea of it, I, I just don't understand. And they just guzzle gas. I mean, incredibly expensive. Anyone who wants to make a last anti-caravan no, point? Uh, what, what, one more. Um, I'd just like to know, I'm very curious to know, after your Appalachian trip, are you still on speaking terms with Stephen Katz? Because uh, judging from your accounts of him in neither here nor there, you're not exactly soulmates, are you? Yeah, um, well, Stephen Katz and I both changed a lot in, in 25 years. <laughs> and uh, I mean, when, the, when, the, when neither here nor there came out, I sent his name, real name is not Stephen Katz, but he is a real person. And, and um, it was, he did go with me on both these trips, the first one around Europe when we were young, and then this one along the Appalachian Trail. And um, when I sent him the first, neither here nor there when it first came out, I, I put a little note on it saying, you know, you will appreciate I've taken a few liberties. Because uh, what I did was I took all of our most disgusting qualities and unloaded them on him. <laughs> and, and he never said anything uh, uh, about <laughs> it. And I, I really did kind of lose track of him. And I kind of wondered when we got off on the Appalachian Trail, because we had a, spent a lot of time together. I mean, I've never been that uh, spent that much intense time with one other person, uh, certainly not outdoors. And he, I kind of thought, well, this is going to come up, and I just wonder what he'll have to say about it. He never mentioned it at all. So, it, and I'll send him 
clearly I'll send him a copy of the manuscript of the new book and uh, probably won't hear from him for another 25 years. <laughs> and he's very sporting. Yeah. It's, it's always amazing to me. Most people are. You can uh, very usually say things about people and they if you, you know, when you check with them, they're quite happy for you to say those things. On that note, Phil is going to be signing copies of those his previous books, not the Appalachian one, in the book tent very soon. Can we thank him very much? Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.